0: everyone, welcome back to Murder Stories with Mo. I'm Mo and today I will be covering the murder of Francine Lori Torrey-Megan. Before I begin, I did not record a Freaky Fridays with Mo segment last Friday. Things got a little crazy in my personal life and I did not have time to record, but I promise that I will be doing a Freaky Fridays with Mo this Friday and I'll be doing that specific segment every two weeks now. It's just uh, a little easier for me that way, but I will still be putting out new episodes every Wednesday. And don't forget, if you have a story you want to share for Freaky Fridays with Mo, email me at murderstorieswithmo at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at murderstorieswithmo on Instagram and my Facebook page, Murder Stories with Mo. That's all I have for right now, so let's get started. hello everyone it's mo from the future i just needed to cut in here and let you guys know the whole time i'm saying this story i was pronouncing one of francine's middle names wrong she has two middle names so her name is actually francine laurie tony megan and i kept saying francine Lori tory megan sorry about that we're gonna flow with it francine Lori tory megan was born on december 8th 1989 Her mother was Lillian Megan, and her father was James Megan. Lillian and James lived in a dingy motel near the Las Vegas Strip and had four other children and were barely getting by, so they decided to give up their daughter to Lillian's longtime friend, Valerie Jensen, and her husband, Dennis Jensen. The Jensens were also the godparents to the Megan's oldest daughter, so this arrangement couldn't be any better, or so you would think. Valerie and Dennis also had three sons and lived in a middle-class neighborhood in Santa Ana, California. They always wanted to have a little girl, but Valerie was not able to have more children, so they were very excited to finally have the little girl they always wanted and were willing to pay anything for their new daughter and to help out their longtime friends. Valerie and Dennis gave baby Francine a new name, Danielle Jensen. The Jensens agreed to pay Lillian and James $1,000 cash, give them money for the down payment of a new house, and buy James a new car as part of their adoption agreement. Unfortunately, even though the Jensens were basically giving the Megan family the chance at a better life and providing a loving home for the daughter they did not want, Lillian and James would make the Jensen's life a living hell for the next nine months. James wrecked the car the Jensen's gave him and demanded them to buy him a new car. Lillian changed her mind about giving up her child and wanted her baby back, but the Jensen's refused to give up their child. James would constantly call Valerie and Dennis, demanding more money and threatening to take baby Danielle away from them. The Jensens would end up giving James and Lillian a total of $30,000. Adoption proceedings were delayed and the demand for money escalated. Despite everything going on, now 9-month-old Danielle, aka Francine, was happy and loved. All of that would change on the night of September tenth, 1990. Upset that the flow of money from the Jensen's had stopped, the Meigans demanded the baby back. James threatened to harm the couple's other children and told them that they did not want to know what losing a child would feel like. The Jensen's quickly got the baby from a bedroom. Tearfully, they gathered her stuff and handed her to the Meigans. They never saw her again. Thanks to the Jensens, the Meagans' living conditions had improved. They had little money, but they lived in a house now. A neighbor who visited shortly after the baby returned remembered seeing a giggling toddler looking for toys to play with in the family's living room. She watched in amazement as Lillian scooped the baby up, called her a little brat, and put her in the bedroom alone, shutting the door. James seemed to resent that Francine was back and that she was no longer a little gold mine. James was out of work again, this time nursing a broken bone in his thigh. The pain from the injury was bad enough as he lay on the living room floor of their home, less than a month after he retrieved Francine. Making it worse was Francine's assistant crying from a nearby playpen what happened next may never be known james gave police conflicting accounts and at one point he claimed lillian killed francine but this is the account he allegedly told his, a friend of his so here it goes james got to his feet and headed toward the crying baby he banged his injured leg on a coffee table and pain shot through his body he grabbed francine by the neck and took her she stopped crying She started gasping for air. He took Francine to Lillian's bedroom where she tried to perform CPR. James stretched out next to her on the bed. He tickled her. He tried to play with her. Anything to get Francine to respond. Francine didn't die quickly. Hours passed and as day broke, she finally stopped breathing. The oldest daughter, who was 11 at the time, saw Francine on the bed. Lillian dressed her dead baby warmly. She put on a new diaper, tiny green pants, a red, white, and blue long-sleeve pullover shirt. James got out a large brown soft-sided suitcase, and Lillian placed Francine inside. She zipped up the suitcase, took it out to their white Chevrolet Impala, and carefully placed it on a bed of clothing in the trunk. Lillian drove cautiously so as to not disturb Francine's lifeless body. With the rest of the children following in a family member's car, they drove over Hoover Dam into Arizona. They finally reached their relative's house in Black Canyon City. From there, Lillian and James drove off alone, Francine's body still in the trunk of the car. They headed down I-17, and once they reached Prescott, Arizona, They took a ranch road exit onto a dirt road that led to a ravine and stopped. Lillian opened the trunk and unzipped the suitcase. She handed Francine's body to her husband. James set Francine down in the wash and poured gasoline from a plastic red container over her body. Lillian turned away, unable to watch. James lit a match. I really hate myself for this, Lillian would later tell police. On October 9th, 1990, two ranchers found the body of Francine Megan. At first, they thought she was a blackened doll with her arms reached out toward the sky. Little bits of her outfit were still visible. For the next six years, everyone in Prescott would only know Francine as baby Jane Doe. Two dozen people watched when she was buried beside Little Miss Nobody, another nameless child who died in 1960. Detectives tried everything. They looked up birth records of every baby born in the county in 1988 and 1989 and visited homes to check on the welfare of each one. Pleas were sent out to police departments in communities who might have missing babies. America's Most Wanted did a segment on the case. Nothing turned up. Only psychics called. No one else. So now we come to Gerardo Vasquez. Vasquez never met James and Lily and Megan, and he never knew Francine. But Vasquez, a social worker in Tulare County, California, is the man who gave her her name back. It was during an on-again-off-again relationship with Lillian's sister Lucy that Vasquez first heard about the secret that many in Lillian's family knew but were afraid to reveal. On a drive one day, Lucy blurted out that she had a sister whose husband killed their daughter and that no one knew about it. Intrigued, Vasquez tried to learn more. But Lucy was scared. She warned Vasquez that her sister's husband, the man she called Jimbo, a.k.a. James, would kill her and the rest of the family if she talked. At one point, Lucy agreed to write a statement for Vasquez to take to the police. Again, she backed out. After the couple had broken up for good, Vasquez knew the secret needed to be told. He wasn't sure where to go with a sketchy tale of a baby who disappeared more than five years ago. He tried writing to a retired judge he once knew, but didn't get a response. He told a supervisor who advised him it was the matter for police. Finally, on January 10th, 1996, he called the Las Vegas Police Department. The following day, Homicide Sergeant Ken Hefner called back, asking for details. A few days later, detectives showed up to the door of James and Lillian Megan. They stammered and denied they ever had a daughter named Francine. Police knew better. They already had checked county birth records for the baby no one could remember seeing over the years. Sure enough, there was a birth certificate for Francine Lori Torrey Megan, born on December 8, 1989. Her parents were listed as James and Lillian Megan. James didn't make things any better for himself when he refused to look at a picture police brought showing Lillian holding Francine. The detectives left, giving James and Lillian a chance to think it over. When police returned to their house less than an hour later, the couple was huddled on a sofa consoling each other. This time, Lillian blurted out a story about Francine being stolen from a casino parking lot years earlier. The couple hadn't notified police, she said, because they didn't trust them. Later that night, James was furious with Lillian. The police would know her story was ridiculous. The family secret was unraveling. Police, though, were also in a bind, and James knew it. They had no witnesses, no confession, little evidence, and they had no body. Detectives dug up the backyard of the Megan's former house, hoping to find a body. They put a wiretap on the couple's phone, but got nothing of any use. Finally, they arrested James, knowing the evidence was shaky, but hoping to get Lillian to crack once she was away from the man who dominated her life. James remained confident. His wife, he told friends, would take the rap for him if necessary. Eager for a deal, prosecutors offered James a chance to plead guilty to second-degree murder with a chance for parole in five years. Lillian would face no charges. The couple rejected the deal. The next day, police arrested Lillian on a child abuse charge, but they were heading to court with a weak hand. 250 miles away in Prescott, a 5th grade teacher named Jackie Price was sitting on her living room couch sipping a cup of coffee and reading the newspaper. On page 3 was a picture of Francine, accompanied by an Associated Press story about James Megan's arrest. Something clicked in Price's mind. A memory of a baby's blackened body found in a ravine years before. That's your baby, Jackie screamed to her husband Dennis, a sergeant in the Yavapai Sheriff's Department. Authorities finally had their body. Confronted with the new evidence... Lillian and Megan agreed to tell police what had happened. The deal was struck. Lillian and Megan would plead guilty to felony child abuse. James Megan would admit to first-degree murder. In return, prosecutors would not ask for jail time for Lillian, and James could be eligible for parole after serving 10 years. Lillian kept her part of the bargain, but when it came time for James to enter his plea, he backed out, betting his future freedom on his ability to control his wife on the witness stand. The jury, though, didn't buy Lillian's contention that the baby hit her head on a television set and ingested some of James's pain pills. Her testimony was riddled with the phrases, I don't know and I can't remember, before the trial judge declared her a hostile witness. Jurors deliberated only six hours before convicting James Megan of first-degree murder. As he was being taken back to jail, he tore free from guards and leaped from a second-story balcony. He survived, but with severe injuries. A few weeks later, Lillian Megan was sentenced to 18 years in prison for her role in Francine's death. On November 1st, 1996, a tearful James Megan rose from his wheelchair to again profess his innocence. He was sorry, he said. He missed Francine. The judge sentenced James Megan to life in prison with no chance of parole. But he could eventually be released, the judge said, because his crime occurred before the state's 1995 truth and sentencing law. I do believe you are truly sorry for your daughter's death, the judge said, but you did not get help for Francine. Ted Simmons, the lead Prescott investigator on the case and an ordained minister, stood beside the hillside grave where baby Jane Doe was laid to rest nearly six years ago. If this was a big city or if a lot of different things didn't happen at just the right time, this case would never have been solved, he said. She looked as though she was pleading for some intervention on her behalf when she was found. To me, it's been divine intervention without the shadow of a doubt. Originally, the grave was topped by a flat white tombstone that offered everything the townspeople knew about her, the year of her death. Now a new headstone bears her name, the dates of her birth and death, and an inscription, Forever in Our Hearts. Valerie and Dennis Jensen, who were now divorced, traveled to Prescott with their three sons to attend her memorial. Valerie and Dennis were absolutely heartbroken to learn that Francine had died only a few weeks after she was taken from them. They were still seeking out legal help to hopefully get their daughter back before they learned of her tragic death. The family still celebrated her December birthday every year. Well, that's it for today's episode, I'm not gonna lie, this particular story was a little bit harder for me to cover just because I honestly don't really like talking about child murders, I don't know, It they just always hit me a little bit harder and they're always just a little bit, no, they're actually a lot sadder than other murders, so I don't know. <laughs> Should I end on a a good note? Um, well, I'll be back on Friday for reals this time. And thank you for listening to Murder Stories with Mo. Goodbye.